Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. All right, so we see patients with syncope or near syncope in the ED like all the time, right? An entire one-third of the Canadian population has had a syncopal episode, but of course only a tiny fraction of them have a serious underlying cause. In times of ED overcrowding and access block, we need to know which patients are safe to go home and which patients should be admitted. And for decades, there have been no solid answers to this simple question. Now, in Canada, we admit about 15% of all comers who present with syncope, and if they're over 80 years old, we admit about 60% of them. My guess is that those numbers are probably a bit higher in the U.S. So this podcast with world-renowned EM speaker David Carr is going to answer one simple question that requires a big, long answer. Which patients are safe to send home, and which patients should we be worried about? So to answer this question, we're going to dig deep into the ED evaluation of syncope and drive home the point that the history is the single most important part of your evaluation. We'll give you the key clinical clues to dig out in taking your history. We're going to give you the best approach to ECG interpretation, and we're going to look at the value of decision tools in risk stratifying these patients. So welcome back to EM Cases, Dr. Carr. It's great to have you here, man. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here. And I think we need to say what here is, which is I'm sitting beside you in studio and it's great to see you. And it's great not to be recording from my basement, but from your studio. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the first in-person podcast at EMC Studios I've done since COVID began. So it's exciting. We're going to talk about syncope and history taking. And of course, the first part of taking a good history for syncope is to figure out whether it's syncope or something else. And that something else is usually a seizure. So do you have any tips on differentiating syncope from seizure? You know, there's all these things we learned in medical school, like tongue biting and urinary incontinence. And of course, some patients with syncope look like they're having a seizure because they have a few myoclonic jerks. How do you dissect out who's had a seizure and who's had a syncopal episode? I think that's an excellent starting point. I think as you brought up, we have to realize that up to 90% of people who syncopize will have myoclonic jerks. And this can have profound implications to patients because often this ends up in people losing their license when they went vagal in an anatomy lab. And I think that's important to know that people have jerks and that's okay. Before we start going into specifics, I want to just tell you about a rule that I love. And it's a rule that Salim Razai told me about on a Rebel Yem podcast where he talked about the 10 to 20 rule. And the 10 to 20 rule is very simple. If you had less than 10 jerks, it's syncope. And if you had greater than 20, it's seizure. And I'm a simple guy. And I think before you even deep dive into the history and and the story from bystander, the 10 to 20 rule is a great way for bystanders on the scene to collaborate the story and say, no, I was just like three or four little hits, as opposed to, you know, he was seriously jerking for about a minute and there must've been 40, 50 jerks. Excellent. So the 10, 20 rule, less than 10 jerks, probably syncope, 
more than 20 jerks, probably a seizure. In the show notes, we'll have a link to Rebel EM's excellent deep dive into literature on the 1020 rule for those of you who are interested. Let's talk a little bit more about seizure versus syncope. There was a classic JAMA, does this patient have syncope article years ago that came out and they looked at the LRs, the likelihood ratios uh, for all kinds of things, you know, head turning during the event, unusual posturing during the event, urinary incontinence, et cetera. Can you tell us like which are the aspects of the history? Let's start with the history where the LRs are really good for syncope as opposed to seizure. Yeah, I think let's summarize one of the big ones. I think the first important thing is if you have epilepsy and someone's unsure, yeah, it's probably a seizure. Like I think a past medical history of seizures is probably the most helpful thing. I think the big thing that I like is getting a clear story of someone being postictal, realizing that tongue biting is an important thing that's suggestive of seizures. But especially tongue biting, that is lateral aspect of the tongue, is like 96 or 97% specific for a seizure versus syncope. Because sometimes when people fall forward, they'll just bite the front of their tongue. But if they're seizing, often the tongue is deviated and they'll nip the corner. So lateral tongue biting is a big thing. The other thing we should realize about seizures is people are pretty tight. And if you don't have tone, like if you lose tone, that sounds more like a syncope where seizures, you know, they're, they're tonic. So that's a big thing. I think the key features is people tend to get hung up on urinary incontinence. And I think that's a big red flag because I'm sure you've seen it as well, that just wetting yourself doesn't mean you had a seizure because you'll definitely see that in both. Absolutely. So while urinary incontinence does have a pretty good likelihood ratio for seizure, it certainly can happen in syncope. So, you know, don't hang your hat on the urinary incontinence because it can definitely happen in both. Are there any other key things like in this JAM article, they said uh, dyspnea or palpitations before loss of consciousness is suggestive of syncope. Let, let's kind of just go through the, the list and what you find most useful clinically. Yeah. Firstly, this is something that you're going to have to get bystander narrative. I had an unbelievable case actually this month was a 26-year-old guy who kept saying, I keep having seizures while he's asleep lying in bed. So I said, do you sleep in a bed with someone? And he said, no. So I said, how do you know they're seizures? He says, well, I just wake up and I'm all jittery and stuff. And it's always when I'm lying down and stuff. And I said, Okay, and he had been to our emerge several times, and you know, he had a substance misuse history. So he was labeled as seizures and stuff. And I took this story of there's no incontinence, there's no prodrome, there's no tongue biting, these were not witnessed, they're always lying down, which is a big thing because lying down can often be syncopal events. He's 26 years old and he had second degree type two heart block. And all these times he'd been blown off, and I'm looking at the monitor, I'm like, you need a pacemaker. And I can tell you, because I spoke to cardiology, this is the youngest person they ever paced. He got a permanent pacemaker at 26, but he had been seen to the eMERGE with a self-reported eye having seizures. Someone needs to see them because people can't tell you they had seizures. It has to come from someone else. And lying in bed and being supine is a big factor to suggest syncope as opposed to seizures. Interesting. So you really need to take that extra step and call the relative, call the school, call the workplace, and really speak to that person directly who witnessed the event, if, if it's present. For sure. And that requires homework. 
That means calling that person, asking if there was a witness on the bus who gave you that op- option. I mean, obviously the situations are important and we'll talk about that. Like if someone's running a marathon and they drop, that's going to be a bit more nervous for Syncope. So I think taking a story of what were you doing when it happened, how were you feeling? You know, we talk a lot about prodrome being important. Remember for cardiac syncope, you're doing totally fine and then you drop. Non-cardiac syncope tends to be there's some warning or something else. And even there can be prodromes with seizures, but if someone's never had it, they don't know what that feels like. An epileptic will gladly tell you, I knew I was going to have a seizure because they've been down that path before. Absolutely. All right. So just listing off some of the things in uh, the JAMA review, things reported by the patient or a witness for identifying patients with seizure were head turning during the event with a likelihood ratio of 14, pretty high. Unusual posturing during the event with a likelihood ratio of 13 for seizure. Um, Urinary incontinence did have a likelihood ratio of 6.7, but as we mentioned, urinary incontinence can certainly happen in syncope, so don't let that fool you. Then in terms of the most useful things evaluated by the physician for identifying patients with seizures were the presence of a cut tongue. So again, that lateral, if you look in their mouth and there's a laceration on the lateral side of their tongue, that's highly specific for a seizure. And the patient having no recall of unusual behaviors before the loss of consciousness has a likelihood ratio of four, which is okay. In terms of the most useful symptoms reported by the patient or a witness for identifying patients with syncope, there was loss of consciousness with prolonged sitting or standing with a likelihood ratio of 20, dyspnea before loss of consciousness with a likelihood ratio of 13, and palpitations before loss of consciousness with a likelihood ratio of 8.3. So those are just some of the most important aspects of the history based on the JAMA review that can help distinguish seizure versus syncope. But of course, there's all these other things that Dr. Carr has beautifully elucidated as part of the stories that you get from the patient that aren't listed in this JAMA review that can certainly help. You know, Anton, it reminds me of a case I saw. Gentleman came in many moons ago and he had stated that he had wet himself and woke up bed wet late for school. And he was an elderly gentleman and I, he was teaching and I said, okay, well, that's kind of strange. I, you know, wet your bed sounds like a seizure, right? And uh, he went to school and in front of his students, he dropped, wet himself, no convulsions, came into EMS, third episode, en route, not on monitor, dropped, wet himself. You know, I was like, I didn't know what to do with this guy. I did a kind of confusogram, CT, blood work, extended lights. Of course, nothing hit. He wanted to leave. And I said, look, your story is concerning. I know something's up. And again, we'll talk about history being queen, but you know something's up. And uh, sure enough, as I was talking to him, I caught that sinus pause on monitor about 10 seconds. And uh, subsequent in following this guy up, he had admitted to using whopping doses of Cialis and Viagra the night before. So clearly taking a story of also, what are you into? What drugs poisoned your AV node that made your heart pause are important. So taking a really good history and knowing your protoplasm is important. Totally. I, what I love about this so far is that we're talking about old school medicine. You know, we're not talking about any fancy tests. This is all just really good history taking. And even the studies won't be able to pick out 
all the subtleties of a really good history. Um, so even though we're sort of in a in an evidence-free zone for understanding how to take a good history, I really kind of love how we're doing this in this podcast because it's kind of been missing a little bit from the way we learn and the way we teach emergency medicine. It's a safe space. This room has 40 plus years of clinical emergency medicine in it between you and I. And I can tell you, it ain't about physical exam. It ain't about POCUS. It ain't about blood work. It's about the history. And history is queen and it is everything. It is old fashioned bedside clinical medicine. This is why we're here. Well, with that in mind, I want to talk about the categories of syncope. So let's say we're pretty sure that the patient has had a syncopal episode and not a seizure. There are really just three main categories of syncope. There's reflex syncope, cardiovascular, and orthostatic. Under the reflex category, there's vasovagal, situational, and cardiac sinus syndrome. Under orthostatic, there's drug-induced. There's volume depletion and neurogenic. And the category that we're most concerned about is the cardiovascular category, of course. And here we have the mechanical causes like PE or tamponade, and then the dysrhythmias. Can you just give us some of your clinical pearls on how to differentiate all of these things? So again, there's reflex syncope, there's cardiovascular, and there's orthostatic. And if we can try and get patients into one of these categories to start, we're already way ahead of the game in terms of figuring out whether they need to be admitted or we need to worry about them or not. Yeah, so I'm not as big of a category box lumper as you may be. I think, as you brought up, it's cardiac versus non-cardiac. That, that's the first question. And if we see cardiac is somewhere between 15 to 30%, older people probably on the higher number, younger people on the lower number, that's the most important thing. So let's jump into the non-cardiac box. And you have kind of brought up some categories. And the first category you brought up was reflex syncope. And I think that's going to be your bread and butter that's going to be your vasovagal syncope for the most part. And it's going to behoove you as the clinician to take a story. And I think the most important thing you have to realize when you think about cardiac versus non-cardiac is the presence of a prodrome. And we'll get back to categories, but I think a prodrome is a super important thing. People who have cardiac syncope drop to the ground, they chip their teeth, they break their glasses, they have no warning whatsoever. When we think about reflex syncope, it's a very different situation. It's very situational. You are getting your blood drawn. You are in the anatomy lab as a first time as a med student. You are on a hot, crowded bus. In all these situations, you don't feel great before. Something doesn't seem right. You're looking for a place to sit. You're looking for a place to chill. And if you don't find it, you will syncopize. So it's very much the devil is in the details of the situation that you're in. But it's certainly about where you were when this happened and how you felt prior to it happening. All right. Prodrome is very important. And where you were in terms of the classic vasovagal. And again, that's the reflex syncope. Are there any other kind of reflex syncope causes that we should kind of think about and know the story about? Yeah, you know what? I mean, clearly we've always talked about carotid sinus and we've talked about people who are shaving, who press on their carotids. 
once a year you'll get a code blue in the ophthalmology part of your hospital and all would be like that's a very frightening place and there's an ocular bradycardic reflex where you're pushing on the globe and people go vagal and you don't want to faint at the ophthalmologist that's a bad scene but i want can i tell you about something really cool yeah, absolutely. You got another story? Yeah, I do. This is a story that hasn't been launched. It's almost cars cases worthy. But I saw this person about two years ago with one of the great residents. And the story was this young yoga teacher who kept saying to me, you know, Doc, every time I do upward dog, I faint. So, Anton, what do you think my question to her was? Why do you keep on doing upward dog again? Yeah, the better question is, what the hell is, <laughs> is upward, upward dog? dog? No, you're more I, I mindful done, than me. I did do 15 years of yoga. Yeah, but, I knew uh, you did. So I, I wasn't as knowledgeable of a yogi. So I said, what's upward dog? So she goes to demonstrate upward dog, and she nearly syncopizes. So all I know is, whatever you're doing, don't do it. So, I so kind, upward dog is where, just for the yeah. listeners who aren't yoginis, yogis? Anyhow, just for the listeners who don't know about Upper Dog, is you go from basically a prone position on the floor, and then you raise your head up to the sky. And so you're extending your neck pretty much as far as you can. Totally. So she kept extending her neck and nearly syncopizing. And so I, I just knew in the story there was something wrong. I didn't have a clue what was going on with her. I kind of did a good exam, actually. I thought maybe she had a, a subclavian steel or a... I don't know. I was checking pulses. She felt fine in between. So I didn't know what I did. So I just figured I'd light her up. So I do a CT of her neck to look at her verts, to look at her carotids. And I get a call from the rad who I know he's just trying to outsmart me. And he says, Dave, I saw your wreck for this person who syncopized. She has classic Eagle syndrome. And I'm like, don't you just hate it when the rad tries to make you look stupid? What the heck is Eagle Syndrome? So I'm like, what's Eagle Syndrome? So Eagle Syndrome is actually really cool. They get a calcified, elongated stylohyloid ligament, and you'll see it on a scout. And essentially, you have this elongated ligament that can compress the carotid, and you can imagine anatomically, with just neck extension, you will compress the carotid. And with Eagles, and it's not named after the bird, but it's named after a doctor eagle, um, essentially, you can have tinnitus and throat pains and all these chronic like ENT, TMJ like mimics. But what you will see rarely is signs of TIA or dissection or syncope with compression. So it's a cool case. It's actually more common than you think. And our patient was referred to have her stylohyloid ligament shaved because it was compressing carotid, but it's a great reminder of you compress the carotid, be it by shaving, be it by neck extension, be it by carotid sensitivity through vagal stimulation in the ophthalmologist's office. It's all about taking the story of what were you doing when you syncopized. All right, story is important. And that's interesting because that particular patient, you know, let's say they did develop a carotid stenosis later in life on one side, and then they were still doing yoga, you know, you might have saved a life there. That's an example of the category of reflex syncope. We've talked about vasovagal. So really with reflex syncope, besides the classic vasovagal, you want to think about that carotid artery. And, you know, when we do carotid artery massage, we're trying to check for reflex syncope. There's this eagle syndrome. So anything that can compress or take out your carotid is in the reflex syncope category. So 
one way of thinking about some of these categories within reflex is just think about the carotid artery. Totally. So the next category of syncope is orthostatic syncope. So we've talked about reflex. Let's move on to orthostatic, and then we'll get into cardiovascular. Any tips or pearls about orthostatic? You know, patients are pretty good at telling you this. They'll say, I stood up, I was lying down, I got up from my chair, I got up from the toilet. Although the toilet is a different place because people bear down and go vagal. But it's usually a story of some change in position. Or you've been standing for a long time. Or there's the classic, you just had a really big meal, you increase your splanchnic blood flow, you don't have enough blood flow to the brain, so you feel presyncopal and maybe you faint. Remember, what syncope and presyncope all is, is that you don't get a lot of blood flow to your brain. And sometimes if it's diverted to your gut or you stand up and it goes to your extremities, if you don't have a lot of blood flow to your brain, you're either going to faint or nearly faint. So again, that devil is in the story of someone who, you know, we used to see back in the days when things weren't busy. I work in a a Catholic area of downtown Toronto and Sunday morning syncopes were common. Like you were in church for a long time. You get up at the end of the service and Nona or Nona is going to go down, you know, because they're going to just stand up after two hours of sitting and There's your orthostatic syncope. It also might be the combination of medications people are on in the elderly population with vasoactive drugs, or it might be some conditions, they're Parkinsonian, they're diabetic, where orthostatically they don't regulate the way a young person does. Yeah, the Parkinson's one is one that I see missed actually quite often, and I really got interested in Parkinsonian orthostatic hypotension when my father-in-law became Parkinsonian. And he had such bad orthostasis that he literally couldn't stand up and get out of bed. He actually sadly became bedridden despite any medications that they gave him to try and boost his pressure. Since then, I've seen countless patients who the resident sees and they say, I can't figure out, they've got an orthostatic drop, I don't know why. And I go and look at the patient and they're they're not necessarily diagnosed with Parkinson's, but I take one look at them. I talk to them for a minute or two and I see that they have that stare. You know, I check for cogwheel rigidity. I'm like, this patient has Parkinson's and this is probably why they they have orthostatic hypotension. So I think it's just one of those ones on the list that's sometimes overlooked and is a simple one because if they're Parkinsonian and they have an orthostatic drop uh, and no other worrisome features for any of the other causes of syncope, then that's something to keep on your list. We've talked about reflex. We've talked about orthostatic. Of course, you know, orthostatic can be if, you know, they're bleeding out. Before we leave orthostatic, I just want to ask you about the value of testing for orthostatic vitals. Because when you look at the literature on this, it turns out that a very high percentage of older patients will have an orthostatic drop and that it doesn't help you because they have an orthostatic drop every day of the week. What is the value of testing for an orthostatic drop? Do you check all your patients for orthostatic drops? Do you check some of them? Do you check none of them? How should we interpret an orthostatic drop? How do we incorporate that? I did about 20 years ago. I certainly don't do it now. I think it's probably misleading and puts you into a category that falsely reassures you to think that the cause of their syncope is orthostatic. It's kind of like bilateral blood pressures. You know, 53% of the population has a bilateral blood pressure difference. If you do it, you might be going down that rabbit hole. With dissection, it might lead to extra tests. With orthostatic hypotension, it might cause you to fail to consider other causes of syncope, such as more sinister. So it is not my routine practice. I'm more interested in the 
every time I stand up, I feel this way. And every time I change my position, that tells me more than the orthostatic drop. That's kind of like gravy if you do it. But don't be falsely reassured if someone has a drop. That's natural physiology for a lot of people. Great point. All right, let's move on to the big bad cardiovascular syncope. So you already had mentioned when we were talking about seizure versus syncope that if there's zero prodrome, someone is just sitting there and boom, they go down. That's worrisome for cardiovascular syncope. Any other tips or pearls on history when it comes to trying to identify people with cardiovascular syncope? Yeah, I mean, you described cardiac syncope. That's cardiac syncope. I think the med school kind of approach was that you have palpitations and then all of a sudden you drop. I mean, certainly, yes, if your heart's racing, but AFib is not the cause of syncope. You know, it's that, you know, when I think about cardiac syncope, I think about is an obstructive cause or an arrhythmogenic cause. And the arrhythmias we'll talk about later in terms of electrocardiographically recognized, but it's not usually AFib. It's usually ventricular or heart block. And the obstructive causes are important, but you can get a lot on history. The thing to me about history, as we talked about, is it's establishing the absence of a prodrome. When you fall and you break your glasses, when you chip your teeth, when you go down without warning, that should alert you to say, this is cardiac syncope until proven otherwise. Obviously, if this is exertional, you know, if someone's at the gym and they faint, if someone's running really hard, if you're the medical doc for the marathon in your city and someone goes down during sports, you have to think about cardiac syncope and there's, there's some event there. And you have to think about family history. Now, I've been asking about family history of sudden cardiac death my whole career. And I've had about one hit where someone said, yeah, actually, my twin brother died at 20. And I was like, that's bonkers. But really, I think the refined way to ask it, as opposed to just saying, has anyone in your family at 20 or 30 dropped, is to say, has anyone in your family you know, died at a young age, or has anyone in your family drowned or had a single vehicle collision that no one knew what happened and they passed away tragically. Because to me, those are lost opportunities to say, did someone have some arrhythmia that made them drown? People will always say they drowned and that sucks and they'll leave it at that. But if a 30-year-old drowns in a pool, provided they didn't break their neck, that's cardiac syncope and that family needs to be screened. What a great nuance there, because I too have to admit that I ask, you know, has there been anyone with an unexplained death in the family who just dropped suddenly? So those are two great pearls. Drowning and single motor vehicle collision are two specific things to ask about that maybe is the reason why up until recently, you only found that one hit on positive family history. So great, great pearl there. All right. Any other pearls about cardiac syncope? We're going to dive towards EKGs later. So obviously the EKG will tell you part that's not part of the story. But I do believe now is a time to remind people, especially during COVID where people retired their stethoscope for fear of fomites, that you need to put that back on your neck. And for younger audience, recall that a stethoscope is like an ultrasound for your ears and you need to auscultate because the presence of an aortic murmur in someone with syncope, might very well be highly suggestive of aortic stenosis. And that will be your time to go to old-fashioned party tricks to check for parvus and tardis and brachial radial delay. 
But if someone has a, an aortic murmur and they're elderly, you might be identifying syncope with that murmur as their first manifestation of aortic stenosis. So we got the history, the ECG. I think I need to put a plug that it should be standard practice for everyone to auscultate people's heart if their chief complaint is syncope. And just to drive home that point, Dr. Carr, if you have an older person with aortic stenosis and their valve area is less than a centimeter and they have a syncopal episode, they have a horrible prognosis. They have a very high mortality rate in the next three months. Time for a tabby, right? Like time to get that fixed. And you might be the person who identifies it before they have profound angina and heart failure. I think that's another one that's sometimes overlooked is aortic stenosis as a, as a cause for cardiac syncope. And again, it might be as simple as just putting the stethoscope on the chest and you hear this obvious systolic murmur that's spreading everywhere. That's something you got to consider because a TAVI can be life-saving for those patients. Absolutely. All right. So that's about reflex versus orthostatic versus cardiac syncope. Before we leave our categories of reflex versus orthostatic versus cardiac, any other pearls for cardiac? I feel like I just keep having more things popping in my head, like pearls that I think people forget. One, if you have a pacemaker, assume the cause of their syncope is cardiac. People with pacemakers don't chalk them up to vasovagal syncope. You're in for a problem if you do that. So I believe that all pacemakers need to be interrogated. And that's a pain in the ass if you work in a center that doesn't have a pacemaker tech to come down and take a look. And I'm spoiled. I get it. But pacemaker syncope should concern you. The other thing is the rhythm strip. When EMS leaves, it's a lost opportunity. If someone syncopizes with the crew, my grandmother had a syncopal episode she had been picked up by EMS and she was taken to the hospital. And I tried to direct her to my hospital, but they said she's really unwell. She's quite bradycardic. And uh, they brought her to the nearest hospital. And uh, when she got there, she looked like a peach. She was perfect. Her ECG was completely normal. And I said to the merch doc, I said, did you have the rhythm strip? And EMS was just about to be out the door. And uh, based on her ECG and her blood work, everything looked great. But the rhythm strip showed she was in complete heart block. You know, so don't let your paramedics leave without seeing the strip. You know, if someone syncopizes on monitor, what the heck were they doing? That's like the gold, right? Someone has a syncopal. I had a chest pain patient who once had a syncopal episode for like 10 seconds prior, and they came in as an end STEMI. When I looked at the rhythm strip, I saw that they had a run of VTAC. So don't let your paramedics leave if there's something interested in history that you might have captured on the rhythm strip from an outside source. All right. So just like you really need to find the witness for the syncopal episode, you really need to dig into that EMS chart and find that rhythm strip if you don't have an answer on your own ECG in the emergency department. And now a message from a sponsor, Med Mastery. Do you want to solve over 90% of your patient's problems without the help of a more senior colleague? Then check out Med Mastery an award-winning online learning platform where you can learn powerful skills like ultrasound, EKG, or CT imaging, to name a few. An affordable subscription gives you access to a wealth of over 80 peer-reviewed and CME-accredited courses taught by world-class experts and endorsed by the British Medical Association. If you're an educator teaching residents or advanced practice providers, definitely check out their group subscription. 
It's great for bringing you and your team up to speed on the most important clinical skills. They're offering a special 15% discount for EM Cases listeners waiting for you at www.medmastery.com slash emcases. That's www.medmastery.com slash emcases. Check out MedMastery today. I want to move on from the different categories of syncope to talk a little bit about the difference between pre-syncope and syncope, because this is this is very important because historically we've thought of someone who's just a bit dizzy as much less high risk than someone who actually fully syncopizes. And we see tons of patients with dizziness in the ED. Some we categorize as pre-syncope and some we don't. For those who were pretty confident that their dizziness represents pre-syncope, how do you approach those patients compared to the ones who fully syncopize? Now I'm going to make this clear. The differential diagnosis for near syncope is 100% the same as the differential diagnosis for syncope. The only difference is they found a chair to sit in. And what you have to realize is the pathophysiology is you drop your cerebral perfusion pressure and you either faint or you almost faint or you faint. And there was an unbelievable study that was done in 2018 or 2019 in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And it looked at elderly patients with syncope or near syncope. And then they looked at major adverse cardiac events within a month. And what they found is that whether you almost faint or you faint, they're identical. So what I want to tell people is stop blowing off the almost faints as benign. I don't think of them any different. And they weren't the same degree of detail with regards to your history, your physical, your cardiograms, and workup. Absolutely. So consider pre-syncope as syncope when you're approaching these patients. We've touched on a few things when it comes to physical exam, like the importance of auscultating for an aortic murmur. We've talked a bit about orthostatic drop and the value of it or the lack of value of it. The one thing we haven't talked about yet is carotid sinus massage. Now, doing a carotid sinus massage on a patient who's got contralateral carotid artery stenosis probably isn't a great idea. And we don't know the carotid artery status of most of our patients. So is there a role for carotid sinus massage in the ED to nail the diagnosis of reflex syncope? It's not in our lane. And I'm not pushing on anyone's carotid. I mean, the nice thing now that we have a modified Valsalva technique is I don't push on people's carotid for SVT either anymore. Um, at the end of the day, is it's not something that we do. And there are some diagnoses, Anton, that we don't need to make in the eMERGE. Like, uh, I don't do tilt table testing, and I don't do other testing. I mean, I'm looking for sinister stuff, taking a story, but I'm certainly not compressing anyone's carotid for any point in the eMERGE anymore. All right, we'll put that one to bed. So that was just packed with so many historical and physical exam pearls. We're going to have them all in the show notes. I want to move on from history and physical. And again, we'll reiterate that really it is almost all in the history, but I want to move on to ECG. So if there was one test that's the most important for patients with syncope, it's the ECG. Back in our first syncope episode about a decade ago, we talked about the ECG approach for syncope as the intervals approach. So you simply look at the intervals, you know, your PR interval, your QRS interval, your QT interval, and if they're abnormally short or long, that'll give you your differential diagnosis of syncope on an ECG, plus a few other things. 
there's also this great mnemonic called the Wobbler, W-O-B-B-L-E-R, the Wobbler mnemonic. W is for WPW. O is for obstructed AV pathway. B is for bifascicular block. The second B is for Brugada. L is for LVH, so aortic stenosis and hokum as well. E for epsilon wave. And R for repolarization abnormality like long QT or short QT. These I've personally found quite useful, both of these approaches. Dr. Carr, you've been giving talks on syncope. You've probably thought about syncope more than anyone else. And I suspect that you have an approach that people might adopt because of its simplicity and brilliance. I hate mnemonics where things like don't make sense. Like I like W stands for WPW, Hmm. but like obstructive, should it be HCM? What are they talking about? So I I think no matter how you slice and dice it, you probably have to look for five things on an EKG. I think let's establish one thing, which is this is in cases. I'm not going to tell you that if someone's heart rate's 34, don't chalk that up to their super fit. That's probably related to their cause of syncope. So bradycardia is easy. Um, then you just need to know your heart blocks. But people who come in very bradycardic, unless they're like a triathlete and it has nothing to do with why they're here, it probably has to do in an 80-year-old diabetic who comes in and faints that your heart rate's 40 is a concern. And whether that's sick sinus or whether you have some conduction abnormality or you're over beta blocked, that's a problem. So eliminate heart block because those are friggin' obvious, right? Your heart rate's 36, you syncopize, you have cardiac syncope. But then you have to look for five things. And before we, I list you things, and it's essentially the wobbler mnemonic, but just remember that the box on top, you can just pick off the QT and the PR from the interpretation. So before you even go south and start looking at the picture, if someone has a long QT, they have a long QT. And if someone has a short PR, then you start hunting for delta waves. The EKG is gravy. The history is everything. But if someone hands you an EKG with one of these five things, it's a gift. And you have to realize it because most of the time when people syncopize, the ECG may not give you the answer. It will be the story. So then you have to go for, to me, five things to look for. To me, the five things, and we'll talk in terms of simple, is WPW. And again, that PR is going to be your clue. Long QT is simple because it's going to say QT prolongation up front. So those two are the easiest. Then the next three, you need to know. You either know them or you don't. And I would say that you get in the habit of writing, they have none of these five things on every chart you have of syncope. The next one would be Brugada. And Brugada obviously has been well described, this down sloping ST elevation in V1 and V2. But I think what you have to realize is that one, Brugada comes out and people are more arrhythmogenic when they're febrile. So often someone comes in with fever palpitations, you blow them off because you think it's a fever. Maybe it's the Tylenol cold and sinus they're taking that's making them palpitate, but realize that it's a missed opportunity. Palpitations plus fever, do think about Brugada. And the scary thing about Brugada is if you miss Brugada, there's a 10% chance that person's dead within a year. So you can't miss Brugada you need to look for that classic EKG finding. So that's such a fantastic clinical pearl that patients with Brugada who present with syncope, it may be triggered by a febrile illness. Yeah, and Anton, these people, if they have an established diagnosis, will know to take antipyretics liberally because they can become antidromic or something like that. So you certainly want to have antipyresis achieved 
in patients with known Brugada and realized that we tend to think everyone who comes in with a fever these days has COVID, but if they have some palpitations, it might not be myocarditis. It might also be an underlying Brugada that's never been diagnosed. So if a patient comes in with a febrile illness who has presyncope or syncope, make sure you get good look at the ECG for that downsloping in V1, V2, because that could be a life saved if you nail that as a first presentation of Brugada syndrome. This is great. So let's just review so far. Bradycardia is obvious in terms of the five big ones that you want to look for on an ECG. WPW, prolonged QT, Brugada, which we just gave some great clinical pearls for. Let's talk about number four and five. Yeah, so number four, let's just call it HCM. Now, remember, HCM used to be called Holcomb, which is a hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. The problem with that is about three quarters of patients are not have a left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. So we actually just call it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I think what's important to know is this is the number one cause of sudden cardiac death in young athletes. And it's the most inheritable cardiac condition with a one in 500 overall prevalence. But I want to tell you something. One, auscultate your sinkable patients. If you have a murmur, think about, is there something going on here? And then get comfortable looking at the ECG because we're talking about ECGs. And the first thing you have to realize with the ECGs is you will see LVH. And you will see atrial enlargement and ventricular enlargement. But remember that LVH occurs because of a problem. You know, people with hypertension, they get LVH over time. But when you see LVH without an incitable stimulus, such as aortic stenosis or hypertension, you have to ask yourself, why does this person have LVH? Their pressure is 110. They're 30 years old. This sounds weird. So when you see LVH without an incitable stimulus, you should think about aortic stenosis. Pearl number one. Pearl number two is you're going to look at that EKG and you're going to see dagger-like, very narrow Q waves in the lateral leads and in the inferior leads. And you might say, you know, I see some dagger Q waves in two and three and AVF and V5, E6. It looks like they've had an old inferior lateral MI. But what you have to realize about pathological Q waves is they're wide. They're like three boxes. They're not like dagger-like, like sharp, narrow stuff. So dagger-like Q waves and in your inferior leads and in V5, E6, where you might think old inferior lateral or UC LVH, those are going to be your clinical EKG pearls for diagnosing HCM. So syncope related to hypertrophy is not just hokum. There's actually two things to look at in this category. One is just LVH that's unexplained. So that's a great pearl. I think that whenever you see LVH on an ECG, you need to think, has this patient had poorly controlled hypertension for years and years and years and years? If they've had poorly controlled hypertension for years and years, it's probably from the hypertension. Is there another good reason why they have LVH? If there's not, then especially if they're presenting with syncope, that patient needs a follow-up and, and needs to get that sorted out. And then the second one, again, is these narrow, very, very, very deep Q waves. Think about Hokum. All right. Let's talk about number five. So we talked about number one, WPW. Number two, prolonged QT. Number three, Brugada. Number four, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is divided into two separate ECG things to look for. What's number five? Yeah. ARVC, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, again, used to be called ARVD, essentially is a really cool one. 
Tell you, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Say that one again. Arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Anton, I've seen this once. And you know, the great thing about picking up cardiac syncope on EKGs is you're saving lives. This was a great story. A 26-year-old paramedic. She was blamed. She was going up a rock climbing mountain. She gets to the top. So exertional story. And then she passes out. She comes down, her heart rate's super fast. She's unconscious for about 30 seconds and then wakes up and she handed me a gift. And the gift was ARVC, which is maybe a once in a career case, but a life saved. And what you'll see is you'll see T-wave inversion in V1, V2, V3. So not like a Wellens V1 through V4. So V1, V2, V3, which is not deep. And then the other cool pearl is that you get what's called an epsilon wave, but it's important to know what an epsilon wave and where it is. So if you think about WPW, in WPW, you have this delta wave, and the way it works is you're at the isoelectric baseline, and you try to get to the top of the R wave, and you can't do it. It's blunted. It's obtuse, and buried in there is a delta wave. In ARVC, you have no problem going up to the top of the R wave, you have no problem going down to the bottom of the S wave, but from the nadir of the S wave to the isoelectric portion is blunted, it's obtuse, it looks wide. I kind of think of it like a reverse delta and buried in that point from the nadir of the S wave to the isoelectric baseline, sometimes you see a little blip and a little irregularity, a little notch, which can be an epsilon wave. And that's the classic finding but I think about it as that reverse delta, that obtuse portion from the nadir of the S to the isoelectric baseline is where you need to hunt. So ARVC can be thought of as kind of like the mirror version of WPW where, you know, in WPW, you have the delta wave. It's a slurring of the upstroke. And this is kind of a slurring of the downstroke plus minus a little notch. We'll definitely have some images in the show notes for both of these. But I like that way of thinking about it as kind of a mirror of the delta wave, this epsilon wave in ARVC. Okay, any other tips about ECG interpretation for patients with syncope or presyncope before we move on to laboratory investigations? Which, yeah. by the way, is going to be brief. Is going to be brief because really <laughs> it's all about the history and the ECG. The other important thing, and when you read the box, is often it will say bifascicular block. And this is a common thing that I don't think gets respect is you will see on the top, it will say bifascicular block. And sometimes you can have bifascicular block with a first degree block, which in the old days, you and I would have called it a trifascicular block. Now, the cardiologists, again, it's all about how they want to be called. They call it a bifascicular block plus a first degree. What I will tell you is if you have some elderly patient who has a bifascicular block plus syncope, if you have an elderly patient with bifascicular block plus a first degree block with syncope, this is not a red herring. And you should respect bifascicular block. Remember, you have three fascicles. If there are two blocked on the ECG and you've had a syncopal event, it wouldn't be shocking to conclude that that person is going in and out of third degree block, just like my grandmother was, and you need to get a pacemaker. So I would say that in patients with syncope with bifascicular block, I would advise that they need telemetry plus or minus pacemaker and offload that cognitively to someone else to make that decision. I think that bifascicular block one is very important because we see tons of ECGs with bifascicular block on them. I mean, it is, it's quite common 
And I do see it blown off, you know, not rarely. So again, a patient who has presyncope or syncope and they have bifascicular block, especially if it's a new bifascicular block, those patients you need to be worried about. And those are the patients that, you know, need follow-up and they need telemetry, etc. Related to telemetry is, you know, cardiac monitoring. And there's been this trend over the last 10, 15 years to do less and less and less cardiac monitoring. There's more and more studies coming out that say, oh, just because a patient has chest pain doesn't mean they necessarily need cardiac monitoring. These days when our emergency departments are filled with patients and we have long wait times and access block and all of that, of course, the more patients that we have on a cardiac monitor, the slower the flow will be in the department. So there's a lot of push these days towards taking patients off of cardiac monitors who do not need to be on cardiac monitors. Which patients who present with syncope or presyncope do you think need to be on a cardiac monitor? Do all of them have to be? What's going through your mind when you're deciding on who needs a cardiac monitor? So my disclosure is my partner is a general internist and the bane of her existence is the access block to the floors where patients need telemetry or not. And you, as you eloquently put it, we're in the same camp. We need to get these people upstairs. So telemetry sometimes can be a barrier. I think the reality is if you think someone has cardiac syncope, and maybe it's the ECGs we've talked about, maybe it's the history, there's value of telemetry. The problem is that you don't know that until you've taken a story and you've done your assessment and you've looked at the ECG. But certainly anyone with the characteristic ECG pattern, anyone who has a story that makes you nervous enough to make consultation, I think warrants telemetry. Now, I don't think people with chest pain need telemetry. But I think if you think someone has cardiac syncope based on an excellent history or pathological ECG, they need telemetry. All right, let's move on to laboratory investigations. Again, we've been hammering home the point that syncope evaluation is almost all in the history with a bit of ECG on the side. Some patients will need lab investigations, like if you suspect a bleed or a PE or something like that as a cause for their syncope. But I want to talk about low-risk patients in lab investigations. Which patients require nothing more than an ECG in their lab workup for syncope? In other words, who are the low-risk patients? Yeah, I would say most are. You know, you also have to know where you work. You also have to realize that most of the times with our wait times, by the time we've seen patients, they've had all these blood work done, including extended lights of troponin and all this stuff. So often it gets done before. But in the person who has a reflex story, uh, it's very straightforward. An ECG is plenty. Um, I will do a beta HCG in the relevant patient where there are concerns. And obviously, I'm doing blood work in people who have, you know, the young woman who comes in and syncopizes, who's had vaginal bleeding nonstop for 21 days with menometrorrhagia, needs a CBC, obvious. But you're not going to make a brilliant diagnosis from the blood work. The brilliant diagnosis is going to be from your history and your physical and your cardiogram interpretation, the blood work really doesn't help you. I don't routinely do troponins unless there's a story where I'm looking for something different, but the workup of syncope is not serial troponins. And remember, one troponin almost always begets another depending on the time frame. So I'm not doing troponins routinely. I'm not doing blood work, but I'm also aware in the shop that I work at, if I think someone needs an admission to an internal medicine or cardiology floor, They've had blood work done. So when that person, hey, maybe cardiology wants a BNP or something silly like that, 
But in patients who are being admitted to the hospital, it's routine practice where I work to have routine blood work and stuff like that. But it's not a routine practice for the patients that I'm sending home who I don't think have cardiac syncope, and I get to them before the nurses to order bloods. Fair enough. I want to talk a little bit more about electrolytes. So, you know, if someone's getting the term that we all hate, routine blood work, they're going to have a sodium and a potassium and a chloride in there. What about extended electrolytes? I've seen such a huge practice variation in terms of ordering extended electrolytes and in general, but specifically for patients with syncope. I mean, when are you going to pick up a diagnosis of syncope in the extended electrolytes? Is there really any value in doing extended electrolytes, even for the patients who you're worried about who are going to be admitted? Do you add an extended electrolytes? I mean, look, we know that when you look at the extended lights, some of them fit into the differentials of long QT or short QT and things like that, or if there's a QRS that's widened. So if someone's getting admitting with QT prolongation, or I know to them to have a prolonged QT, I will check off extended lights. But the reality is, apart from that, it's not a routine part of my practice in the workup of many of these patients. Fair enough. That's pretty much my practice as well for syncopal patients. Really, if If the QT is long, you're probably going to want to check a calcium and a mag. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. So you've mentioned troponin. I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because I see a lot of patients who are getting troponins for syncope. In fact, at the hospital that I work at, if there's an older patient who presents with syncope, they've had a troponin drawn before I've even seen them. What is the real value of a troponin in a patient with syncope? Because of course there's troponitis, if you want to call it that, where these high sensitivity troponins there's going to be some false positives there and there's going to be some downstream effects from ordering troponins when they don't need to be ordered. Which patients with syncope should we be getting a troponin in? The ones you're worried about ACS, the ones that have chest pain, the ones that have some maybe exertional something that you're worried about an ACS equivalent. Maybe they had an episode of VTAC because they were running and then syncopized and you think they could have had VTAC and maybe you'll see trope spill, albeit the history is valuable enough. But it's not routine practice. I, I get it that everyone gets a trope. You know, I'm not doing tropes on patients with SVT. I mean, I don't think tropes are be done in people with paroxysmal AFib that comes and goes and they have an episode. I mean, what are you asking yourself? And and what is the relevance? And I think a lot of the times people get admitted for, as you said, troponitis. I mean, it's not part of the syncope workup unless someone has something in their story that suggests you were worried about ACS. And if you're not worried about ACS, then why are you doing a troponin? Absolutely. All right. I just want to talk about a few other tests that sometimes come up in the patient with syncope. The next one is CT head. And I see this done all the time in patients who lose consciousness briefly. You know, intuitively, you need some massive assault to your brainstem or both cerebral hemispheres to make someone syncopize from a a CNS cause, right? 
Sure, a subarachnoid hemorrhage can present with syncope, but there's almost always a headache before they syncopize for subarachnoid hemorrhage. The one that always trips me up is the drop attack. So that's a vertebral basilar event that needs a CT and probably a CTA head and neck as well. So really, it's two questions. One is, which patients with syncope or apparent syncope require a CT head? And then how do you differentiate a drop attack from cardiac syncope? So I think most people get a CT head because they syncopize and hit their head. I actually think we're looking at the collateral damage from the syncopal event as opposed to the inciting event for the syncopal event. Sure. So often we see old people who are anticoagulated and fall and hit their head and you're going to scan those because they fail Ottawa head rules. It's certainly not routine practice, but as you said, like a subarachnoid, come on. I mean, if someone has a sudden onset of the worst headache of their life and then faints, yeah, obviously they need a CT head, but the faint is not cardiac and it's very clear. So almost no one gets a CT head for me unless it's the result of the fall and they hit criteria for CT head rules because they're anticoagulated or they have some problem. I think you have to ask yourself, when you look at an elderly person who's fainted five times and keeps coming to your eMERGE for CT heads, someone's missing the answer. If, if you keep getting CT heads, then the clinician has missed the boat. And maybe that bifascicular block doesn't require a CT head, but requires a pacemaker. And I would say that with regards to drop attacks, again, in isolation, like if someone has any of the other Ds, we're talking posterior circulation, diplopia, dysarthra, neck pain, chiro, headache, dysmetria, fine, light them up. But it's all in the story. Unless someone had a horrible headache or some vertiginous equivalent prior, I'm not CTing these people of their head or their neck unless the fall caused trauma. Fair enough. All right. The last ED test we need to talk about in the evaluation of the patient for syncope is POCUS. There was a paper from this year that suggested that the integration of POCUS results in patients presenting to the ED with low-risk syncope may actually increase the accuracy of predicting the risk of short-term serious outcomes as defined by the San Francisco syncope rule. So in other words, there's this paper that suggests that POCUS might actually be useful for picking out those patients who seem like they're low risk from history, but they actually are high risk. What are your thoughts on the value of POCUS to help identify or risk stratify patients with syncope? Firstly, POCUS is a broad term. Your POCUS and my POCUS might be different. I mean, there are people in my group who, what they can determine on a POCUS is very different than mine. To me, it's certainly not a routine part of my management, but in certainly the hypotensive person who syncopizes, I would be very worried about that in the same way that I like to do a rush exam protocol of POCUS. Because remember, if you have a pregnant person who syncopizes, clearly you're going to look for an ectopic. If you have someone with abdo pain who syncopizes, clearly you're going to look for a AAA. If you have someone who's hypoxic and syncopizes, clearly you're going to look for a PE and the RV and you know all the findings. If someone has chest pain plus one, you're going to look for dissection features with POCUS. So what I'm getting at is there's a handful of sinister non-cardiac causes that on your history or physical will probably prompt you down a pathway for POCUS. But in someone with a benign story that you're going to send home, it's not my routine practice, nor do I think it should be, that you're putting the probe on everyone. But I think I know where I need to look. 
And obviously trauma and syncope is a whole category in itself. But I want to remind of the focus for your ears is your stethoscope. And you should be making sure that that probe is on everyone's heart as opposed to the ultrasound routinely. So when it comes to cardiac causes of syncope, there's obstructive causes. And PE is one of those examples. So patients who present with pulmonary embolism certainly can syncopize. In terms of your trigger to work up for a PE, my trigger is they have to have either chest pain or shortness of breath or both for me to work up a PE. If a patient comes in with syncope with neither of those symptoms, then I usually don't work up for PE. What's your trigger for working up a PE in a patient who presents with syncope? I mean, we probably can all go back to that brief moment in time where the results of the PESIT trial came out that said something outrageous, like one in six hospitalized patients had a PE. And we all freaked out and said, what have we been doing wrong? And the answer is we haven't probably been doing a lot wrong. I think that was a different cohort. And I think that it certainly is not something that I'm doing liberally. I think you have to realize that one, syncope is not in the Burke rule. It's not part really heavily taught in Wells. You know, the first person I ever TPA'd was a 31-year-old and I picked up the chart and he had syncope. He also had a heart rate of 131 and a saturation of 90% on room air. And that told me that he doesn't have cardiac syncope. There's something wrong with his lungs given his chest was clear. So I think in people who are hypoxic, I think in people who have, you know, reason to have a PE, be it their risk factor, their active cancer, and they have other things, like you said, chest pain, shortness of breath, hypoxia, unexplained tachycardia, maybe I'll start to think of it, but I'm certainly not dimering, CTing routinely unless after an excellent story and exam, I'm worried about PE, but the syncope in isolation Almost never, I can't think of a situation where syncope with nothing else would prompt me to work that up. I like how you use dimering as a verb. <laughs> what bothers me more about dimering is serial dimering. You've ever seen serial <laughs> dimering? That's like the way worse than dimering. Awesome. All right. I want to talk about disposition and decision tools. I mean, really, everything we've talked about till now is about deciding what ultimately we're going to do with the patient. And that's why we've talked in such detail about the history and the physical and the ECG and et cetera. And I want to talk about the decision tools. So there have been many, many decision tools for syncope. The San Francisco syncope rules were the most famous ones about 10 years ago. Now it seems like the Canadian syncope rules are, are the most famous ones. I know that you have a bias in terms of using decision tools for syncope, but let's talk about the Canadian syncope rule because that's the one that seems to be most in favor now if you're going to use a decision tool for syncope. What is your take on the Canadian syncope rule? Okay, so you and I, both proud graduates of the University of Ottawa, which is the hotbed of literature here. So I always want to endorse our alumni rules. This isn't one of them. Of the rule scores, San Francisco, Canadian faint, this is the best of the bunch in my opinion. But I really believe that the external validation that's been shown outside of Canada doesn't suggest that this is better than Gestalt. And that's why this whole podcast is on discussing Gestalt. And with Gestalt, I mean history and a knowledge of some ECGs. Why I'm so critical of all these rules is like, I don't order tropes. The faint score wants a BNP. 
Like these are just not part of my workup. The San Francisco Syncope score, and what I'll say about that, and I'm sorry to digress because I know you wanted the Canadian perspective, but decision scores are based on places where the medical legal climate permits you to admit everyone, which is more San Francisco and American than it is where you and I work. The reality is with San Francisco, if you say, they say, yes, admit people with abnormal EKGs or who are hypotensive or who are anemic. Yeah, obviously. Like, that's Captain Obvious to me. And I think that's why it excludes things. What I like about San Francisco is it kind of makes you think about aortic stenosis and it pushes you down the work. The problem with the faint and the Canadian score is the requirement of blood work. I think if I had to pick one, I would use the Canadian one. Because they do talk in a corollary that not everyone needs to get a troponin. But I think that there has never been an issue where I can think of where my gestalt would be swayed by the San Francisco syncope score. And I really don't believe the validation that's been done. And I'm sure if you got EBM people much smarter than me, they would not throw all their eggs into this basket because it's just not there yet in terms of its validation outperforming gestalt. I'm sorry, I wish it was. It's not something I memorize. A lot of it is intuitive. A lot of this stuff is common sense, but it's just not ready for prime time. And I'm not sure it ever will be. All right. Yeah, I agree. When you look at the most recent validation of the Canadian syncope score outside of Canada, the bottom line was basically that it was no better than clinical judgment. So that's an important point there. Just to review some of the aspects of the Canadian syncope score, we'll have these in the show notes again. It's predisposition to vasovagal symptoms, history of heart disease, any systolic pressure reading less than 90 or over 180. Under investigations, it's elevated troponin level. But again, we're not going to be ordering a troponin level on everyone. Abnormal QRS axis, less than minus 30 or over 100 a QRS duration of over 130 milliseconds, a corrected QT interval of greater than 480 milliseconds. And then it does actually incorporate gestalt in terms of, is your diagnosis in the emergency department vasovagal syncope or cardiac syncope or cause unknown? And so it suffers the same problems as many of these scores that incorporate physician gestalt into the score itself. And again, When you look at the external validation of the Canadian syncope score done quite recently, it really isn't any better than physician gestalt. Yeah, I mean, the reality is none of us are sending home hypotensive syncope patients with wide QRSs and positive troponins. And (laughs) I, I just think that this adds that added layer of subjectivity with its gestalt built in that probably in and amongst itself is enough to decide whether you should be nervous or not. Yeah, I kind of feel like syncope is not a specific diagnosis, right? It is such a wide spectrum of diagnoses under syncope that it kind of seems silly to apply a decision rule to it in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like clearly a pregnant person who has a syncopal event should make you nervous regardless of their score. And someone with the worst headache of their life should make you nervous. And someone who has hypoxia should make you nervous. And someone who's had a pacemaker should make you nervous. But it's so wide, like you say, that you really can't outperform your overall big picture. Take a detailed approach. If you compare these decision rules to, say, the PERC score or the WELL score, the PERC and WELLs are talking about a very specific diagnosis or the subarachnoid hemorrhage score. 
talking about a very specific diagnosis. And those tools make a lot more sense to me just in general because they're talking about a specific diagnosis rather than a symptom. For sure. All right. Let's say you've decided to send home a patient who is syncopized. Are there any outpatient tests that you'd recommend for any subset of them? You know, there's stress tests, there's Holter monitors, there's loop recorders, there's tilt tests, there's a whole bunch of different tests, all with different test characteristics, all with different false positive rates. If you're sending home a patient with syncope, let's say there's the extremely low risk patient that you're not going to think about doing any tests, but let's say there's a patient who you're moderately worried about. You don't think they need to be admitted for whatever reason. Are you ever ordering Holter's stress tests, loop recorders, tilt tests? How do you do this on a practical level? Do you just have them follow up in a cardiology clinic and they'll deal with those tests? What do you do? It's kind of like, do you order PFTs on your asthmatics? Like there's some things that were just not in our lane. And you know, I think we order referrals to specialists to make those decisions. Like there's no doubt that you have the easy ones that go home with no investigations. You have the concerning ones that come in for investigations. And in that gray zone, there are some patients who are going to need follow-up and they are going to need an echo and they're going to need a Holter. Maybe they're going to need tilt table testing. But those are decisions that I'm not making. I remember I'll tell you a great story because this is me. But I saw this 26-year-old came in, and she apologized for coming. Which Dave, is, let me ask you, how come every patient is 26 years old? I don't know, because I'm changing the name and gender <laughs> on everyone. So 26, maybe living back to the glory days. Like, wow, you've seen a lot of patients who are 26 years old. We only see young old. people where I work. If anyone wants to come work at UHN, please do. It's yeah. only full of 26-year-olds. 26-year-old comes in. She's taking a shower. She says, I wake up on the ground. I don't know what the hell happened to me. Broken tooth. Should have gone to see the dentist is how she starts the history. I was super worried about her. She had no prodrome. She went down. And I didn't like her story. Like her story was no prodrome, went down, chipped teeth, needs to come in, in my opinion. Now, what did I do? I mean, I did blood work on her. I did a beta because I think young women should have betas. That can be a cause. Of course, her blood work's normal. Of course, you could do 400 troponins or normal. And uh, I did blood work because I knew I wanted her referred. And I knew I wanted her admitted. And I thought she warranted telemetry or a workup. And of course, you know, I spoke to the service and they weren't happy because her trope was normal. And I said, I just don't like her story. She got referred. They, they saw her and sent her home kind of like whatever, Dave. I got feedback from the cardiologist who, who basically saw her pretty urgently, did a Holter 72 hours and said, Dave, you know what? Like the story spooked me. And Holter was normal. And then she said to me, you know, Dave, I didn't like the story like you. I put in a loop and I saw that she had QT changes and had a run of torsades. And she said, you know, the best part of the story, Dave, is that not only did she get a defibrillator, but she has a twin sister who had the same problem. So you took out two people by this safe. And it's really the story. And sometimes you do need experts to work those people up. But I don't know what the difference in that. And I don't think it's our job. It's our job to say who needs to come in and who needs workup. I thought she needed to come in. The reality is if she came in, it's unlikely she would have had torsades overnight. But that was something I offloaded to someone because I was worried about them. But I will tell you one part of management that I think eMERGE docs don't do well, which is safety to drive. And we only think about driving fitness with regards to seizures. If I think someone has cardiac syncope, 
I notify the Ministry of Transportation that they're unfit to drive or at least need an evaluation to do so. And I do believe that if someone's having syncable events and you think that's cardiac, failing to report would be below the standard. I do think we need to make sure that these people know they're not safe to drive. Great point. It's interesting, the philosophical question of how far do we go in the ED evaluation of patients in general? And I just want to put a plug in for another podcast that will either be before or after this one coming out that I recorded at Cape with Paul Atkinson and Grant Innes on how we define emergency medicine and how far should we be going. Part of that discussion is how far should we be going in our workup of patients what work done by physicians should be done by emergency doctors and what work by physicians should be done by other specialists because we're in an era now where we are overwhelmed with doing stuff that perhaps other specialists should be doing. Well, I just can't believe how many amazing clinical pearls there were in there. I'm probably going to listen to this one myself over, which I usually don't do. Thanks so much, Dr. Carr, for your really amazing insights. You know, it's great how when you choose a topic to speak about worldwide, how you really dig deep into all the literature and then your ability to take all of that, rather than just talk about the studies themselves, to be able to apply all of the literature, plus the clinical experience, plus the practicalities of working in an emergency department, and apply that to elucidate all these amazing practical clinical pearls you're saying that history is the queen. Well, you're, you're the king of doing that, man. Thanks, pal. And obviously surrounding myself with smart colleagues and smart specialists is the way you build the deck. So I'm privileged for sure. All right. Take it easy, Dr. Carr. Have a great summer. Before we go, Podcast Camp tickets go on sale August 31st for all you budding podcasters or more experienced podcasters who want to up your med-ed podcast game. Check podcastcamp.org. Also save the dates for the second virtual EM Cases Summit, February 2nd to 4th, emcasessummit.com. And stay tuned for a new EM Cases blog on our website called EMC GEM, GEM being Global Emergency Medicine. We're going to have the brightest minds in global emergency medicine tell us about cases from around the world, cases from resource challenged countries that might help inform our practices wherever we practice. And we'll also blog on the latest cutting-edge developments in global emergency medicine. The blog might inspire you to take a year in another country practicing EM to enrich your practice and your life. Until next time, take it easy.